One of the best ways to keep up with church life is through the City Life app. The City Life app enables you to listen to messages from Sunday, explore the Bible while listening to messages, stay up to date with church life through our Connect section, and much more. Download the City Life app in the App Store or Google Play Store today. Welcome to the City Life Podcast. We're all about making Jesus known. We pray these messages will help equip you to become a follower of Jesus, who is empowered to influence and shape culture. Enjoy the message. Welcome to church today. I believe God has something good for you. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab your Bibles, Bible apps, and some notes. I'm anxious to share God's word with you. If you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Matthew 22, verse 37. Uh, today I am <clears throat> I'm going to be sharing another message in my Real Questions series of messages. And this message is entitled, What's the Big Deal About Sin? <clears throat> um, here's what I'm going to ask you, you'll do. Will you do this with me? I want you to think deeply today. I, I don't ever, ever want you just to check your brains at the door, ever, ever. But, you know, today especially, I just want you to think deeply. And I want you to consider what I'm sharing with you today. Uh, you know, many of you have heard the story of the original sin, which was, was when uh, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Satan presented himself to Eve in the form of a serpent and, and, uh, and, and tempted her to eat from a particular tree that God had said, no, you can't eat from that tree. Eat from any others, just not that one. So what we call that, we actually call that the first sin, the original sin. We call it the fall of man. But you know, a lot of people's like, well, what was the temptation? I mean, temptation to eat an apple? It's like, you go to the store, you're going to feel guilty to buy an apple? No, actually, that's not it at all. What was the temptation? Think about it. what really was the temptation? Well, the way it was presented to them is if, if they ate of this fruit from this particular tree, they're going to get to be like God. You get to be like God. self becomes God. Appetite becomes God. Wisdom and knowledge become God. And that was the tipping point. That's when everything shifted, and we're actually still suffering the consequences of that today, because Adam and Eve fell for that temptation. They wanted to be like God. So what they did is they elevated themselves, and they created this new identity for themselves, unfortunately, only to release havoc on the world. Now, what happened in the Garden of Eden is still happening today. It happens all the time. Um, we just keep dethroning God. We do. For me, started at 529 Broadway in Montecito, Washington. And that's what it looks like today. Thank I just love Google Earth. You can go back to your childhood homes. And uh, that, that, uh, that little unassuming house probably built about 70 years ago was where it all happened. That, that was my Garden of Eden as a young child. That's where I first created identity for myself because it was all about me. This is the site of the first sin that I actually recall. Uh, and, 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 and I'll just be honest with you, I liked the fruit. It was like, it was good. I was probably about two and a half, three years old, um, and my mother had made a big thing of chocolate chip cookies and put them in a big jar. 
And she put them up high uh, in the kitchen, far out of my reach, but I knew they were in there. Uh, and, and, it, and, and it was a cold winter day back in 1968 in Washington State, and, and my parents provided this photo of, me, of it, so that's actually what it really looked like then at that time when we lived there, Dad's old station wagon. And, and um, Mom was taking a nap on that fateful afternoon and even though I was supposed to be napping I wasn't because all I could think about were chocolate chip cookies mom had baked them it was still the odor of them were still in the air I was laying there thinking oh, well why is she keeping this away from me I have needs after all I'm big enough to make decisions for myself. I can walk around and do things. So I quietly snuck out of my bedroom and into the kitchen, and I very clearly recall getting a chair, pushing it over to the, to the, the bullseye spot where I knew I could get up there, and I got up on my toes. I remember even that. And, uh, and, 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 and I, I got there, and I secured the cookie jar. And I took it down. I remember taking it all the way down to the floor. And, and I, I took it all the way down there where I had plenty of leverage and tried to sit there and strained and strained and strained. Finally got the lid open. And once it opened up, inside there it was, the forbidden fruit that brought me joy. I put myself on the throne. And I took and I ate and I enjoyed. I was happy. And I quietly returned the cooking jar to its location. I went back to bed. I was now in charge of my life. I felt guilty. Actually, I felt very, very, very guilty. But thing is, mom didn't find out for a long time. You see, I disobeyed mom. I stole and I began living a lie. Now, according to my mother, this was just the beginning of things because as I was talking with her about this, just double-checking the facts yesterday, I, it's always good to double-check the facts before you pre present them in a public setting. Uh, she said, oh, yes, that was just the beginning. She said, she said do you see that house? Uh, she goes, uh, that, do you see the, the fence that's on the left-hand side? I said, yes, I do. She goes, do you remember that fence? I said, no. She says, well, the neighbors had to put that fence up because you and your older brothers would go over into the yard and steal their ornamental flowers and bring them home to mom. You would steal the flowers, and so the neighbors built the fence. And because you were too, you couldn't climb over the fence, but your brothers sure made sure they had no fence is going to stop us. And so they continued to steal the flowers, and it actually became quite an uproar in the neighborhood. Blessing mom, stealing from the neighbors. And she said, but I always had the nicest, most fragrant uh, flowers in town, you know. So it's like, okay, so this, is, this just became part of life. And then mom said, and then it got worse. She said, she said then you decided that you were just going to go wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted, and you began sneaking out of the house. You learned how to unlatch the door. We actually had to put a latch up six feet high on that front door so that you couldn't get out. We had to keep you locked in because you would disappear and just be gone. My Garden of Eden, it was, it was poisoned. But, but, but look at me, I was such a nice boy. I mean, I, I couldn't be a sinner. A little blonde poison angel, come on. What's the big deal about sin? Well, actually what sin is, sin is actually an attempt of ours to fill a void with something other than God. And what, what, what sin does is it diminishes what's called the glory of God, which is the brightness of God, the goodness of God, and his closeness and his intimacy. Yet, at the same time, everyone sins, and everyone falls short of that glory of God. Uh, so some sins are very, very obvious. I mean, they're very obvious. But, but 
a lot, and I, I would actually have to say most, are not very obvious. But on the other hand, we can't judge the thoughts and intents of other people. So there we are, you know. We can't be in the position of judging someone else there. And yet you look around the world, and it's very, very, very difficult to not come to the conclusion that something is horribly, horribly wrong with our world. According to Christianity, the problem is sin. But here's the deal, and you know this, the concept of sin in and of itself is considered to be ludicrous, um, offensive, and even laughable to a lot of people in our culture. And, and I believe it is simply because a lot of people don't really understand what sin is from the Christian perspective, but there are also a lot of Christians who really don't understand either. Uh, a lot of people would say that, that, that sin is to violate one of the Ten Commandments. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a starting place. But then you, if you start there, that means you have to create lists of sins. And so we do. We create lists of sins. And, and, and the, the lists literally become endless. And we have to define them. And we have to get more specific. And, 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 and the whole thing becomes vague and cloudy and overwhelming. And, and so what we end up doing is we settle for the, these, these general definitions of sin such as like this, sin is doing bad things. Like that's, that's like about as most vague as it can be. And it's interesting because I asked some people just randomly this last week, like, you know, what, what do you think sin is? What is sin? And the answer that I got almost all the time was basically this, doing bad things. That answer is weak and that's vague. So no wonder the topic of sin is really overwhelming. In its purest form, in the Bible, sin is defined this way. Sin is this. It is missing the mark. That is actually the pure definition of sin. Missing the mark. And like missing the target. Like, like if you were at a shooting range, what is the mark? What is the target? It's that bullseye. But whoever hits the bullseye all the time. You just, you just don't. You still aim for the mark. You aim for the bullseye. But you don't always hit it. Now, now, when it comes to sin, it's the same way. I mean, we want to, to aim for the mark. We want to, we want to hit it what's, what's right. But then, we're like, well, what are we aiming for? Because quite often we're thinking, well, I'm trying not to sin. And so it's like, no, 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 no. You, you actually have to aim for something in order to not sin. So what do we aim for? That's the big question. In fact, it's the first commandment of the ten, Commandment number one. That's in the Old Testament. And it's in the New Testament too because when Jesus was confronted with that because someone said, okay, God, Jesus, what is the greatest, most overarching, most important commandment in, in, in all the world? What is it? What is this mark? What is this bullseye for us? And Jesus said very clearly, here's the mark, here's the bullseye, it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Okay, that's like everything. That's just like 100% abandonment to God. Jesus said that's the first and greatest commandment. And now, I'm not going to get into detail on that whole teaching of Jesus right there, but you have it open in your Bibles, and you should have that mark because it's important. Basically, what he's saying is when our focus, get this, when our focus is being consumed with God and loving other people just as much as we love ourselves, you'll actually hit the bullseye every time. So what Jesus did, he took all the lists of the sins, the lists and lists and lists and lists of sins, and he brought simplicity to it. So basically sin is this. Sin is 
refusing to base your fundamental identity as a child of God. It's like, that's not who I am. See, sin is to become one's own self. Sin is to have your own identity apart from God. And that's where it starts. And that's what causes then all the lists. Jesus really said it clearly. You just do these simple things. You love God with all your heart. You love your neighbor as yourself. You'll be able to, you, you, you actually won't even sin. So we really need to kind of take it up to that pinnacle again. We get, we get so distracted by the minutia of it. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, I, I could come up here and list sins all day long. You could listen to them for hours and hours and hours and hours. How interesting would that be? You know, you'd leave. You'd just like bash your head against the wall. Ah, you know, I can't take it. <laughs> right? Well, I would. Because we're not wired for that. Instead, God says, focus on what's right. Um, in many ways, sin is actually even pursuing a good thing and making that good thing the ultimate thing. And I think that's one of the primary challenges for us, and I want you guys to grab hold of this, because good often becomes God. Here it is. It's when you relentlessly, passionately, intensely pursue a good thing so that you will have a higher sense of yourself or significance or purpose or happiness above your relationship to God. Now, now the good things, they're good things. They can be anything. They can be like having a strong body. It could be uh, a successful business. It could be having a vibrant family. A good thing could be educational attainment or a snazzy social media profile. A good thing could be nice clothing or financial acumen. A good thing could be well-honed talents. A good thing could be athletic ability. A good thing could be personal influence. Another good thing could be political clout. And these are all good. There's nothing wrong with any of them in and of themselves, but far often, especially in our culture, they become God. See, our good talents, our good interests, and our good roles in life become the God. Because why? They are now our identity. Let me explain this to you. I, I'm, I'm very clear on this in a lot of different settings. I like to say I have four primary roles. As a man of God, I have four primary roles. And my four primary roles are this. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I'm a leader. Now look, those are my roles. They are not my identity. That's not who I am. You got that? Those are, are those good things? Okay, those are, those are actually those are very good things, but that's not who I am. See, my identity is not wrapped up in any of that, regardless of how wonderful and good those things are. You see, if my identity is wrapped up in that, if that's who I am, then I will fail. And when I fail, it's going to be bad because I've actually created a false God. And then I'm in a horribly, horribly dangerous place. See, my identity, I, again, I'm clear on this. I say this a lot. My identity is I'm just simply a man of God, deeply, passionately pursuing God. But here's the deal. I have to remind myself of that all the time, every day, constantly. Constantly. For example, like take one of these. Um, pastor, like as a pastor, I could be enamored with ministry success or uh, numeric success or surpassing what some other pastor has achieved. But for me, that's, I would call that a devilish trap because being a pastor can never be my identity because it would actually open me up to so much evil and then sin in my life. You see that? 
when I was a kid, there was this really cool movie out. It was called Rocky. I loved Rocky as a little kid. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, it came out later on than when I lived in that little house and committed my original sin. But I was a little older at that point, but I committed many, 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 many more by that point. But, but in this movie, Rocky, his girlfriend asks him this question. She, she's, she's asking, why are you so persistent on winning? Why are you, why are you, do you give this every ounce of energy you have? Why is this such a big deal to you? His response is interesting. His response is, so that I will know that I'm not a bum. See, this fictional character is using athletic achievement to become the defining force of his life. And that's what I'm talking about being dangerous. But the truth is, everyone needs a defining, uh, defining force for their life. We all have to have that. I mean, we all want to stave off the fear of being a bum, right? So what do we tend to do? Naturally, we tend to look to our achievements, our social status, our talents, our love relationships, or even our passion or our zeal for a cause. And we define ourselves based upon those things. So those things now become my identity. This is who I am. See, some get their sense of self from uh, gaining power and wielding that power over other people. Other people get their sense of self from, uh, from, from gaining peer approval or community approval. Still others find their sense of identity or self from even self-discipline or control. But unfortunately, identity apart from God is fundamentally unstable. Puts us all on shaky ground. It's a little song I used to sing when I was a kid. I remember well also, the wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. That's building your house on the sand. Because when the rain comes, your house is going to go splat. <laughs> See, w without God, your sense of self looks really, really good on the surface. And here's the truth. Us city people, we're very, very good at this. We know how to make this look good on the surface. And it might look good on the surface, but it's not good. See, because all it takes is one major episode or maybe an event that, that's, that's out of your control that will absolutely destroy your sense of self and identity. For me, if I, if I build my sense of identity upon being a good dad, a good father, then I'm unstable. Why? It's because I can't control the actions of my children. And if I keep building it that way, then I become a control freak. <laughs> then I begin to sin. And then if something happens that causes that identity of being the perfect father to disintegrate, then I don't have any value because there's no me left. You see that? If you lose your identity and your sense of self also because of what someone else does to you, you'll not only be resentful, but you'll move into bitterness and hatred. That's where the cascade of sin begins, you see? That's, that's, that's why you know, sometimes people will say, you ruined my life. But it's not that a person ruined your life. It's they ruined your identity, but your identity was your God. And so all of a sudden, since you are now, that identity, that's ruined. That's wrong. See, if you lose your identity even because of your own personal failings, what you'll end up doing is you'll end up beating yourself up and beating yourself down, and you will call yourself a failure and a loser the rest of your life. Now, tell, show me what's good about that then what happens? It's the cascade of sin. See, only if you have an identity based upon God and his perfect, unchanging love toward you will you be able to weather 
the very real and very hostile and very ugly storms of life, you'll literally be able to face anything. Yeah, I said that you will literally be able to face anything. But see, an identity not based upon God, that actually becomes the root of all types of addiction. See, if you, if you take your, your, your sense of purpose, your, your meaning of life, your, the, of, of who you are from your marriage or your work or your cause or, or social media platform or some achievement, as wonderful as those things are, if it's anything other than God, you are actually a slave. You are enslaved. You're addicted because you have to have those things for you to be you. You catching this? See, you're you're addicted. Your God's substitutes are controlling you. You're actually in chains. You're not in freedom. What happens is then that's when you become overwhelmed by your sin. And then when something goes wrong, with that object of your identity, the identity of your greatest hopes of life, the wheels then fall off of your life. See, a life not centered on God is going to leave you empty. The, the fulfillment of your own personal dreams, they will never fill the void that's really there in your heart. A famous New York author by the name of Cynthia Heimel, she, uh, she once wrote about some of the people she knew in, uh, in New York, these people that she knew actually before they were stars, she talks about them. She says one was uh, uh, worked behind the counter at a makeup counter at Macy's. Another worked selling movie tickets at a theater and, and so on. And, but she explains, though, as these people became successful, every one of them, and she says every one of them became more angry, more manic, more unhappy, and more unstable than they were when they were simply working hard to fulfill their dreams, to get to the top and actualize their dreams. Why? Well, I have her quote here. She says, that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that they thought was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with ha-ha happiness, it had happened. And the next day, they woke up, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Good things become God, and sin results. If our ultimate goal in life even is family, and you're passionately caring about your family, what will you end up doing? You will end up caring less for other families. And where's the good in that? If your highest goal uh, is, is, is your nation or your ethnic group or your city, then you'll actually tend to be racist and arrogant. That's sin. The conclusion of the matter is, is that if only God is our ultimate good, then you're going to find yourself drawn to all families and all races and all social classes. In fact, the whole world. In fact, that's what the gospel lies in, our passion for the whole world, everyone. Because in Christ, we are all alike. But if you get your very identity or your, your, your own sense of worth from your political platform or your cause, then the politics and the cause have now become God. And you're on very, very shaky ground. 
And in order to hold your ground on that shaky ground, then you begin to despise and demonize oppositions. And anything that is a differing political or social position, and I'm telling you guys, when you do that, you're in sin. You, you, you're profoundly proud maybe of being, oh, I'm so open-minded. I'm so tolerant. But actually, it appears, I see it. I deal with it all the time in our communities. You actually become extremely closed-minded, intolerant, and indignant toward the people you deem to be bigots. Those who say they're the most tolerant actually tend to be the most intolerant. Why is that the case? It's because they've made that their God, and it doesn't work. That's sin. So, so racism and classism and sexism, they're not really matters of uh, ignorance or lack of education. Really, they all go right back to this issue of who is your God? And often we're confronted with this fact that, uh, that we're not the people that we should be. You look at yourself and you know you're not the person you should be. And almost, almost always what we tend to do in our, those settings is we, we say, well, okay, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Or, uh, you know, the, the next, the next uh, calendar year comes around and say, okay, new year, new me, here we go. And, and you, you say, I'm going to try to live harder by my principles. Uh, but the thing is, that always leads to a dead end. Uh, see, we, we tend to think if I just quit doing some of the bad things, and I do more good things, then it's going to be okay. But I'll tell you guys, it doesn't work out that way. See, sin is not simply doing bad things. It's not. See, because Jesus actually says, give me all. J Jesus doesn't say, don't do all these things and then give me this much of your time. Don't do all these things, but give me this much of your finances. Don't do all these things, but give me this much of your work. Does Jesus say that? No. No, I know a lot of people teach that, but it's not true. Jesus says, no, I want you. I don't want your stuff. I want your things. I want you. See, sin is failing to give God everything. That's really it. So to fix this, what we have to do is hand over our old self. and That part of our self that keeps trying to not do bad things. We hand over our desires, not just the evil ones that we think are evil or, or the, the, the desires that we think are good. We just hand God everything. And then watch how you can overcome sin. Watch. It's like this. It's like if your life considered to be like this huge field, a field, but it's full of weeds. You can cut them down. You can mow them. You can burn the field but the weeds keep growing back again and again and again, right? So you want a field of wheat, but all you get are more weeds, and at the same time, you're wore out. You're just ready to give up. This stuff didn't work. I'm working so hard, I'm getting no results. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I never told you to do that. I never asked you to do that. All I want you to do is give the field to me. Give your life to me. I will plow it. I will sow the good seed in there, and then all things will become new. Your life will be plowed up and re-sown. See, God asks for everything. He asks for all of you. 
If you live for a career, that career doesn't go well, it just might punish you the rest of your life. If you live for the purpose of vibrant health and you get a disease, it'll lead you down a very, very dark path. If, even if you live for the success of your marriage and it doesn't turn out right, you're going to be in absolute torment because you're going to feel worthless as a person because you were a failure at the marriage. You catching what I'm saying? But if Jesus is at the center of your life, and if you fail Jesus, he's not going to condemn you. He's going to forgive you. But I'm telling you guys, your company, your cause, your passion, they can't forgive you because they have not died for your sins. Jesus is the only God who can fulfill you completely, and it works, trust me. And when you fail him, he has already forgiven you eternally. It's actually quite a deal. Let me show you how it works from the Bible. Uh, Paul, great missionary, he wrote this letter to a church in Rome that he had started. And this, this, in this letter, he writes a lot about the, the Christian life. And I just want to use some scriptures here. One thing he says in there is, this is true, everyone sins. Everyone does. Also, sin has a payback. It's called eternal death. That's, those are realities. Yet at the same time, Jesus gives us an opportunity for something that's called eternal life. So we don't have to, we don't have to receive the payback from sin. And Jesus saves us from eternal death when we ask him. So we, we just say, Jesus, I, I need that. I want that. And then what does Jesus do? He justifies us so that we're at peace with God. In, in other words, he makes it as if we've never sinned. And then there is no condemnation, no condemnation for people who are in Christ Jesus. When you're in Christ, God looks at you, he sees Jesus, he sees the Son. There's no condemnation in you, none. And nothing, 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 nothing can ever, ever, ever separate you from God's love. Does that sound oppressive to you? Does it? No. It's the beauty of our faith. Even while you're still in your sin, Jesus forgives us. So our lives are not focused, therefore, on trying not to sin, but focused on loving God and loving other people. When I took driver's ed in Harlingen, Texas, when I was 15 years old, I had a hard time staying within the, the, the lanes, the, the line. I, I would look at those lines and go, man, I'm, I'm going to go over those. Oh, yeah, I did. I, I was like running the car off the road all the time. It, my, you know, like, like my mom and dad didn't even want to ride with me. I was running off the road constantly until we got to this place in the course where all of a sudden it's like I had this aha moment. They said, now if, you're ever, if any of you guys are having trouble running off the road, it's because you're looking at the lines, you're looking at the boundaries, you're staring at that, trying to line it up with your car. If you look at the boundaries, you're going to go over the boundaries. If you look straight ahead, if you aim high in your steering, you're going to stay right on the path. That was the scariest thing for me to do. But I remember getting in the car, lifting my eyes up and looking down the road, and I was going, oh, my gosh, I'm staying in the boundaries. Oh, my word, this, this is working, this is working, this is working. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's the same way in our spiritual lives. See, that focus greatly diminishes the appetite for sin or even the accidental slipping over the edge. 
focusing on God gives you liberty. Focusing on the boundaries gets you in trouble. And, and it's not a liberty to sin, but it's a liberty to live life to its fullest. It's a liberty to overflow with the fruit of God, the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you guys, there's nothing restrictive about the freedom that's brought by the Spirit of the Lord. It's a good thing. Well, how do you keep this alive? How do you keep it going? Well, it's simple how to step into it, but it's a daily decision to keep it there because you know this. Well, I, I definitely know this, <laughs> is that there's constantly this this nudge in me to put something else up there as God every day. I mean, every day. And, and so how to deal with sin is basically this, is I have to put Jesus back on the throne of my life every day, constantly. I mean, remind yourself that he is God. Remind yourself that he is God. <laughs> and then you can go ahead and do all of your good things. You can do all of your good things knowing that he is the God of your life and that those good things aren't going to become God to you and you can really excel at those good things and do them with all your heart, but you know that's not your identity anyway. Your appetite for sin will decrease. You're going to find yourself at peace with yourself and at peace with God. You, my friend, will be a happier person. What's your idol? that you put up there in the place of God? What, what, what keeps stressing you out? What keeps mastering your mind and your emotions? What keeps bringing you down? What keeps making you angry? Those are hints and clues. I don't know. I don't know because I, I can't see. I can't see that. I don't know. It might be a good thing that you've turned into a God. And I, and I even have some action items. I jotted these down real quick. What are the basic things? And, and th this, these are things that, I, that we are very intentional about and, and making a part of our church as far as my own personal life that help to keep Jesus on the throne. One is, is just to simply worship every day. Just worship God. God, I worship you. Put on some worship music in your car, on your Spotify playlist or whatever. And I don't know, Jordan creates a new one every month or so. And, and uh, just, just listen to some music. Worship God. Worship God. Tell God you love him. Tell God you love him. When we have worship in here, it's not a preliminary. It's not just singing songs. It's not just, oh, that's the song part. No, that's, this is actually a part of where, where we just want to worship God. Get your mind off of all the other stuff and worship God. So I tell Jordan, it's like, Jordan, I don't want to just get up. I don't want us to ever just do songs. We're going to worship God. We're going to worship God in this place. I'm serious about that. That's why you don't want to miss out on that because you're actually missing part of the whole thing of keeping God on the throne. Daily worship. Here, here are just a few others reading the scriptures. You need to have the Bible app on your phone. Those guys are joking about it earlier. But you know what? Make your phone a better Christian. Come on, get the Bible app on there and, and get into the Bible. Just be there. Be there regularly in the scriptures. Every day. It's easy. It really is. You can even set up reminders for it. How simple can it get? It's easier today than ever before in the history of the world. Sit under preaching. Yeah, just to receive the word of God so that you hear it explained, you hear it passionately proclaimed to you, and, and God actually pieces it together in a way that's, that's specific for you. In fact, every one of you can leave here today, and you are all going to hear something different of what God spoke in this place because it was God speaking, not me. I like that. Another one is to fellowship with one another and, and fellowship with other followers of Jesus. That means just to hang out and, and get to know one another because you're around other people that are pursuing the same thing. Yeah, but they're not very perfect either, and I know their lives. And nobody said they are, and you sure know you're not, but at least you guys are moving in the same direction. You see, it helps. Daily prayer. Every day, pray, pray, pray constantly, pray. Get in your car, pray, pray, pray. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. 
oh, God, I need some big help today. <laughs> it's a good thing. God, I messed up. Help me. Forgive me. Ugh. The more you do that, the more you're just propping Jesus back up on the throne. Holy Spirit infilling. You know, don't be satisfied with the measure of God in your life. Ask God to fill you with his spirit so you're just overflowing with his spirit. Another thing that we practice around here is water baptism. Here in just a few weeks, we'll be baptizing in water. Why is that significant? Because it's a public way of saying, Jesus is on the throne of my life. The old person who didn't have Jesus on the throne is buried. And it is a powerful, powerful act. Powerful act. That's why I'm so passionate about water baptism. And you know, some of you, you, you've not even been meaningfully baptized in water. You need to take a card out. You need to mark it today and turn it in. Just say, next time we're having water baptism, I want to be a part of it. And, and another one that Jesus told us to do before he departed. He said, I want you to do this often, and, and I want you to do it until I return, and that is communion. Why do we do communion? Well, it's just some religious thing that the churches do. No, actually, you know what? That, that's a lame answer. That's like saying, oh, well, sin is, uh, is doing bad stuff. <laughs> no, see, communion is this holy act where we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's an object lesson where we touch the bread, we touch the juice. The bread represents the body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ. We touch it. We feel it. We taste it. It goes into us. It's this living illustration so that we don't forget what Jesus did for us. Helps us to put him right back on the throne. You can do communion at home. We do communion every single Sunday here. You can go over and get communion during our worship time at any time. That's a normal thing for us. But today we're going to have, we're going to have corporate communion. We're all going to do this together because I really believe this is what God wants. We're going to put him on the throne of our lives and our hearts right now. To participate in communion, though, you just need to have Jesus in your life. Around here at City Life, we practice what's called open communion. It doesn't mean you have to be a part of us. And communion doesn't equal membership with anything. It just means that you love God. You just love God and you want him on the throne of your life. That's what it means. Isn't it beautiful? So let's pray. Let's just make sure our hearts are right. Because I want us to do some communion. I want us to put Jesus on the throne today in this room. I, want, I don't want there to be any movement at this time. Just please just stay right where you are for just a moment. Close your eyes. Focus internally. If you, if you are in this place where you've just not surrendered your life to Jesus, he, you know he's not on the throne of your life. You want him to be there. You want to even receive communion in a moment and say, yes, Jesus, you're there. I put you there again. I want to take your, your body and your blood, and I want that in me. I want that a part of me. But you, you know that Jesus is not really king of your life right now, and you want that to be the case. I'm going to ask you just to simply acknowledge it just by lifting your hand for me. That way I can see your hand. I want to connect my faith with yours. And then we're going to pray together so that you can invite Jesus Christ to become the king, the CEO, the president of your life. Would you do that? If you're ready to make that decision, when I count to three, I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I need Jesus today. One, two, three. Lift your hand. Lift your hand. I need Jesus today. Thank you. Thank you. Who else? You can put your hands down. Who else? Thank you guys so much. Here's what I'm going to ask that we do. If you lifted your hand, listen carefully to me. I want you to pray these words with me. I want you to mean them from the bottom of your heart. Everyone else in this room, I want you to pray as encouragement to those who lifted their hand who are making bold statements today. 
to put the past in the past. Come on, pray these words with me, everyone in this room. Dear Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my King. I give my life to you. Thank you for dying for my sins. I believe you are the Son of God. Today I give up my past and I put you on the throne. You are my God. You are my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from City Life Church. You can keep in touch with what is coming this season through social media and our City Life app. And Sunday, our favorite day of the week is on its way. We hope to see you at City Life.